Blog Talk Radio. Good Saturday morning out there to those of you in the South where I have relocated about six weeks ago from Philadelphia to the Atlanta, Georgia. And I, I, I got to tell you, I just love it. I love Philadelphia. I love in the view outside my window and to hear the birds. I just thank the Lord that I get to wake up to this. So I want to welcome all of you here. Uh, if, if you if you celebrate the winter holidays, as you know, first of all, the weather has been um it's been uncommonly warm. I feel like we are in early spring. Uh, that's how warm it is here in the, in the Atlanta, Georgia area. But I'm enjoying this weather. And for those who do celebrate the holidays, we're, the clock is ticking. It's December the 12th. We are coming down to the wire as far as if you do get holiday gifts. I hope you get out this weekend or next weekend because we don't have much longer. And I want to thank you, thank you, thank you from wherever you're tuning in from around the world. As I was telling our guests, we had a great show last week. For those of you who might not have called it, I do encourage you, because we are involved in relationships, to go back not only and listen to today's show, but to also listen to last week's show where we had three very experienced and highly skilled psychologists on, and they were talking about how, how we enter dysfunctional relationships to hide from true love. And that's something I think anybody could benefit from. And today we're bringing you another awesome show, and I have to tell you, with the guests we've had on, I'm amazed. You are absolutely, without a doubt, listening to the winning book radio show off the shelf. And I welcome you to this Saturday, December 12th show. Thank you for joining us to our loyal listeners who've been here for 11 years. Oh, my goodness. We have such an insightful and talented author on deck for the days off the shelf. And I simply cannot wait to introduce you to her. I learn something from every show, so I'm excited. But I want to give you it's something I started doing a couple of weeks ago on the show, just to give you a thought to think about, plant a thought into your head. And the thought for this off the shelf is... Don't let the silly little dramas of each day get you down, for you are here to do great things. That's something I want to leave you with. And next I want to to encourage you to go out and get a copy of my latest book, Love Pour Over Me. Every book's not for everybody, but I can tell you this. If you love mystery and you value relationships, there's a relationship between Raymond and his father, Malcolm, and Love Pour Over Me. It's a complicated relationship because Raymond's father is And then that impacts Raymond's relationship with the love of his life, Brenda, who he meets when he goes to college in Pennsylvania. He is academically very gifted, and he's a very gifted athlete. And it's his friends, his friends, one from Italy and the rest are from the United States, their personalities, what they bring to the table, and they get caught up in a very cliff-hanging mystery. I think you will absolutely love Love Forward Me, and you'll probably learn a lot about yourself as you read it. You can get a copy of Love Forward Me in ebook format or print. Get it at the library. You can get it at the bookstore. Anywhere, anywhere they sell books. If you don't see it, all you have to do is ask the clerk. You can just tell them, I want to place an order for Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. And they can order a copy for you because Love Pour Over Me is carried 
by the largest book distributors in the world. So please go get a copy and let me know how you enjoy Love for Over Me. And now it's a special time for us to go and meet our special guest here today on Off the Shelf. And our special guest today is Abby Kelly. Abby is a Christian. She's a wife, a writer, an editor, a Bible study leader, and she is the author of the book, The Predatory Lies of Anorexia, A Survivor's Story. Abby is a contributor and editor at Finding Balance, and her blog has millions of followers, so she's connecting with lots and lots of people. Want to learn more about Abby? You all you have to do is click over to predatory, and that's a that's like a hyphen, predatory hyphen or dash lies dot com, and it's spelled the way it sounds: p r e d a t as in Tom o r y dash l i s dot com, and again that is p r e d a T O R Y dash L I E S dot com. If you go over there, you will find that she's open, she's candid, and she's honest. And we have her here with us today on Off the Shelf. So, I like I always tell our listeners go over to the website even as you listen to the show because you can learn that much more about the guests. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Abby. Good, good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing great, and and it's wonderful to have you here. I'm just so, so blessed. And when I look back over the the years at the guests we've had on, we've had New York Times bestselling authors, we've had movie producers, we've had editors, we've had book club presidents, we've had so many different people on the show. And last week was the first time we had three guests on. They were were, were great. They, They flow very, very smoothly at the same time. So really, really excited about having you on. I wanted to start by asking you, now at your website, I know you share that you grew up in a Christian home. For people who just (laughs) listened to the intro and they think, okay, wait a minute, those two don't go together. She's a Christian and she suffered with anorexia. Some people might be struggling with that. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Because how do we get free if we pretend that we're not bound? That's not the way to do it. So, and right. I, I know at your website you share that you grew up in a Christian home, yet mm-hmm. each family mm-hmm. and home is different. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wanted to ask you: when you say Christian, that can mean like any, you know, the, the faith belief. But what was life like for you growing up? Do you have siblings? Where did you grow up, et cetera? If you could just give us a little backstory on Abby Kelly. Sure. I grew up in mostly small-town Oklahoma. Um, most of my years were spent in Perry, Oklahoma. Uh, we went to uh, church in a slightly larger town where Oklahoma State is, Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is where I subsequently went to college. Um, I have three younger sisters, um, and then my parents, and we grew up with lots of animals around as well. Um, I'm really blessed. My parents have been married. I think they're going on 30-plus years now, so I was really fortunate to grow up in an intact home as well. Um, Like I mentioned, I'm the oldest of three sisters, and um, as I mentioned, we grew up in a very strong Christian home. Um, We went to church constantly, and it wasn't just church, though. It was something that was integral, everyday, constant part of our lives. My mother homeschooled us. 
um, for me, it was first through ninth grade, being the oldest that, you know, that tapered down in the years as my sisters, she put them into um, private or public schools a little earlier than I did. But the main reason for that was because she wanted us to have a Christian education. And both my parents wanted God to be um, the central focus of our education and our lives. And so we grew up um, with Bible time, studying the Lord. Um, he was He was just he was a constant everyday part of our life, and to me that has continued to be probably the greatest blessing, particularly struggling with an eating disorder, because even when I felt hopeless and even at times when I felt like maybe God had abandoned me or my faith was too weak, I knew him. I knew him intimately, and I knew that he was my only hope. And even in those places where I sometimes felt even suicidal, as if maybe life wasn't worth it, um, I knew for a fact that it was, and there was something that always held me back from discounting the ultimate value of my life and always kept hope alive for me. So um, i trying to think, what other simple details would you like to know? So, so, so can you tell, so how many, and I apologize if you said this, how many brothers and sisters did you have? I have three little sisters. Oh, so you're the oldest girl. Yes, okay, ma'am, so I'm three. the oldest. I apologize. I had stepped outside to get away from indoors, and someone has decided to make noise outside. I'm moving. That's fine. That's, you, you are absolutely <laughs> fine. You grew up in Oklahoma, okay, and you're the yes. oldest. So how, your youngest sister, how many years between you guys? I'm trying to lead into where the challenge started. So how many years okay. older than you are you from your, your next oldest sister? Okay, so I am two and a half years older than Jennifer. Um, okay. Years older than Kelsey and ten years older than Rochelle, um, so there was a good spread there. And I think you know if I were to look at those dynamics and maybe begin to figure out where the challenge started, and certainly family dynamics were a big part of it. Um, it was that I never, I was struggling to find what was mine in um, uh. what was mine in a family where each of my sisters was so talented. Um, also, being the oldest, you know, it wasn't too long before the younger ones required more of my parents' attention, and I was to be the older one, the mature one, and kind of leaned on um, without without as much attention to what I was individually. Um, my my second sister down, Jennifer, is incredibly talented in almost every foreseeable way, and I just remember there was there was a sense of competition, and I wouldn't say that that was ever put on me by my parents or anybody else, but it was this, I had this feeling that I needed to make, to define myself, um, to make myself distinct from everyone else. You know, I was one of four girls. You know, you know what's odd? I'm listening to you. And, mm-hmm. I, again, I appreciate what you're sharing because I believe somebody will be blessed from it, either listening to the show today or might plant a seed or in the future somebody listens to the show through the archives. But, I always heard I'm the middle child. People always said, "Oh, you gotta watch those middle kids," because yes. they say the older child is the leader, which you were the oldest, uh-huh. and then they tell you the middle child is the one who doesn't get the the, the attention because the older child used to be the was for a while the only child, and mm-hmm. then became the only. The middle child gets attention, but still the oldest child is getting some. Then here comes the right. babies. So now mm-hmm. the, they say the middle child just gets kind of squeezed, and I was yes. you the way you described yourself. I was thinking she sounds like she's a middle child, <laughs> not a, not the oldest sibling. You describe yourself the way I've heard many people 
talk mm-hmm. about how middle kids uh, struggle with those things. But looking yes. back, we talked about it in brief, and I really want this for people who a lot of people like to hide things like eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It not just eating disorders. We like to hide our issues. We I think we look out at a young young age. We see who's getting teased mm-hmm. in school, who's getting teased at, at the family. If somebody says, "Oh, you look chubby" or whatever, we right. we pay attention to those things, and then we see what do other people who are not mm-hmm. perfect. What do other people approve of? Let me try to be that. And then when we're not, I think we like, okay, this they won't like, so I've got to hide it. And then it gets Mm -hmm. stronger and you don't go free of it. If you had to say anything in particular, uh, I know this is your story, but I'm hoping, again, that it resonates with a listener. But when you look back, what would you say pulled you toward that I know you said you felt like you had to compete with your siblings, but if there was mm-hmm. anything specific and maybe somebody could look out for that themselves so they don't fall uh-huh. into that, what would you say, if there was any one or three things, what would you say might have pulled you toward anorexia? Well, I think I was kind of on the cusp of what I would call culturally a perfect storm. Um, I don't know if you remember, right about in the middle of the 90s was when the new fad of everything fat for you, low fat, no fat came out. And then in, in my observation, too, that was when um, exercise became almost this cultic thing that it is today. Um, and you get so much affirmation for being an incredible endurance athlete, for having incredible self-control around any buffet or, or source of food. There is There are accolades for that. And no matter how thin I ever got, I would still have people look at me when I would avoid food and say, gosh, I wish I could be like you. Or I would come back from running a marathon and, gosh, I wish I could be like you. With a complete oblivion to the fact that I was dying both physically and internally. And so I think that was one of the things that if I were to tell someone something they could look for in their own child or friend, it would be whether or not they have grasped um, or been indoctrinated by this cultural ideology that, um, extreme self-discipline is um, is the most important thing. And um, being really wrapped up in this cultural idol of um, extreme discipline, extreme thinness, um, and that kind of thing. I think that's probably one of the most observable traits of an eating disorder. And the problem, the reason it can grip someone so tightly is because no matter how thin they get, no matter how sick they are, they will still, at least these days, get affirmation for the very things that are destroying them. Uh. Um, I mean, you can see it. You can see it in high school. You can see it all the way down in middle school. I mean, I've been, a lot of times I love to go and sit in a public place, like a coffee shop or something, to write. And I can't tell you how many times I've been there and seen a group of 11-year-old girls just sitting there chatting, talking about um, their weight. Uh, what they will and won't eat, how far they ran. Um, and it's just, there is a, uh, well, and I'm sure you've heard of the website, Inspiration and even Fitspiration stuff. There is this constant, overwhelming affirmation for all of these things that feed right into particularly anorexia. And then you talked about hiding it. Um, I never dealt with bulimia, but I feel like that is, the exact same um, attributes feed into that, that it is a, at least for a time, easier to hide that eating disorder because publicly the behaviors mm-hmm. look 
um, familiar. They look normal. Um, so I feel like that is, that's the person who is in more of a situation where they want to hide it. Anorexic just eventually gets to the point where they want the attention for being that in control of everything in their lives. Wow. You know, you, you, again, I thank you for what you're sharing. Um, it's so, it's so good when we have the courage not to hide, but, um, I was watching Dr. Phil, and he was telling somebody who hoards. He said, "You do that because when 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 your papers are stacked up just so right, you feel like you have control of the world. So if somebody moves, if somebody moves, what you feel you have control of the way you stack, the way you line your pens up, the way you stack your books, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you feel like you have lost control of the world, and you go into an absolute exactly. panic. So you have to learn how to. We, we don't have control of the world." And isn't that a good Mm-mm. thing? <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness! Isn't it though? Oh my God! We isn't that a good thing? Now, now my knowledge yes. of anorexia is is not isn't so deep. I do know, I did know somebody that I worked with that I really believe had that. I mean, she was very very thin, and she mm-hmm. stayed to herself a lot. Uh, but through research in preparation for today's show, I did learn that anorexia nervosa, uh, it may have a genetic component. Environment, biochemistry, personality, and emotional and psychological factors, through the research I did, I found also play a role. Mm-hmm. Had, you, had, had you met or known anyone with the disease, before you start developing, when you said about teens, I was watching another show where yeah. I see where teenagers they they they'll do this. They're all saying I'm not going to eat but 500 calories a day or whatever. Had right. you were you influenced by someone else who was struggling with it? Yes, I was, and I, I tell this at the very beginning of the book. Um, and it, at that point too, it was it was unconscious. I didn't know what I was observing or what I was seeing. Um, I had gone to Wyoming to visit my cousin and her father and her stepmom one summer. And this was, this was the summer of 1994. And this was kind of, if I could, I can actually kind of pinpoint a, a season where my eating disorder started. And um, I went to spend a week with them just for, you know, summer vacation. And I remember when I got off um, the plane and we arrived at my aunt and uncle's house, my aunt had the scale in her kitchen. And my cousin and myself and I all weighed ourselves right there in front of each other. And um, from that moment on, the entire trip became about who could control their food the most, who might get up and run two miles in the morning, who could pull the last piece of skin off their chicken. Um, And my aunt, unfortunately, was extremely, um, more than even just her weight, extremely appearance conscious. Um, everything from her nails to her hair, everything revolved around appearance. Um, and then, um, trying to think the sequence of events there, um, we found out many years later that that aunt, who is no longer a part of our family, um, was in the process of dealing with bulimia at that time. And so I didn't recognize the behaviors at that point as eating disorder. Um, but you talk about being able to control your world. I was 14. I uh, wanted to fit in, and I was more interested in um, following their guidelines or morphing myself to their ideas of what was um, acceptable. 
um, than I was in, in being myself. And so even though at that point I probably couldn't have told you what a calorie was, what um, anorexia or bulimia was, um, I observed someone else using food and exercise to um, create their identity. And I wanted to, to fit into that. And so I remember coming home from that trip and it was it almost seems uncanny how it was almost like a switch that was flipped though. And I came home from that trip and within a matter of 30 days, 60 days, I went from being around 125 to 105. And I had been regularly, I had been regular with my menstrual cycle for a couple of years and then it just disappeared. And that was kind of, I think the trigger for my parents went to my mom and I was concerned because I had suddenly stopped having my, my monthly cycle. And I remember her looking it up in the, um, the medical dictionary that she had on the shelf and discovering what amenorrhea was and that some of the contributing factors can be um, low body fat. And that's when she had me step on the scale and we saw the drastic drop. And that was the first time the light bulb went on as to something could be wrong. At that point, up until that moment in my own mind, the only thing that had happened was I had developed a greater sense of self-control. Um, and then the, the flip side of that is, is really kind of a disgusting sense of pride because the greater self-control you create and the greater um, self-discipline, I began to see myself as better than other people. I was a more, um, I was a better person for being able to resist food and I was a better person for being able to work out harder and longer. And, and so then getting the affirmation that I mentioned earlier into that feeding that cycle. And unfortunately it's just a downward spiral from there. Yeah. You know what? I'm listening to you. And one thing I, I, um, I'm learning is, I think, what is it, the, they say the content of the different things that make up our lives. For some people, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, for challenges, the good things, the content is different. But it's mm-hmm. the, the um, when you look at it as a whole, it's it's still the same. A problem is a problem. It doesn't matter yeah. if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's food or exercise or hoarding or you or somebody is almost addicted to conflict they have to be in a disagreement yeah. they 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 they're addicted to it if it's too much if it's peaceful they're like they they actually would panic so that you get used to these things it doesn't matter so much the content it's we have to yeah. there's a deeper root there's a deeper root and I'm sure you touch on it in in your book there's a deeper root yeah. because we get caught up in the different forms and we start dealing with, and one form goes away, and here comes another one. Then another form goes oh, yeah. away, and here comes another one. And we just jump around from form to form yeah. until we find out what is the root. What is, forget the form. What is the root of what's going on? And let's let's deal with the root. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you. How, you said at first, so you come back from this trip. You're you're looking. Mm-hmm. You're thinking. How do I get more control of my life? I want to stand out. I want to be acknowledged more. How many years? So you think I've got control? Look, these other people—they can't turn away from this stuff, and I—and look, right. I'm doing it. How many years were you anorexic before you even realized that something was wrong? Actually, with my with the uh, the attention of my parents, I have to give them a lot of credit for this. It was not even a full year before we realized something was wrong, and that's also in part because I lost the weight so drastically. Um, Really, that, that trip to Wyoming that was beginning of the summer, it was probably May or June of 1994, and it was by August or September that we had decided there was something drastically wrong. Um, I went to a doctor, and unfortunately, the medical field, I think it, to this 
to this day, and especially back then, was not and is not um, well-versed in what an eating disorder looks like. And unfortunately, we went in and the doctor admitted, yeah, she's a little underweight, but he gave me numbers. He turned around and said, well, you should eat this many calories a day and, you know, not worry about it. Um, for an anorexic, numbers are, <laughs> are everything. And at 14 years old, the number that he chose was not enough to, to fuel my, especially the activity level that I'd adopted at that point. And, um, so, but I, I took what the doctor said, and I used that as leverage to my parents while I'm counting my calories and I'm eating enough. And unfortunately, the cycle was just allowed to continue. Um, they finally decided that enough was enough and sent me to an inpatient treatment center in, I think it was October of 1995, um, and unfortunately, that ended up being more of a psychiatric, uh, psychiatric hospital, and uh, they did not have the tools or the means really to deal with an eating disorder, and um, the environment and the type of people I were with didn't have similar issues, and I wasn't there for very long. Um, so it was actually less than a year before we really caught on. Um, but there was a lot of time in there where you know, I kept telling them, I can fix this. I can fix this. You know, I can do it myself. But I really didn't want to. I felt pretty good about the way I was managing my life, which is the, uh, the, uh, false, the false feedback of, well, when you asked about a root, and this is really where the, the false feedback comes from, is it became an idol to me. I felt pretty good about it. I was very comfortable. I worshipped my, my self-image. What I had discovered was my thing. And um, that was, I think, the hardest part for me. Um, beginning in and honestly going chronicling all the way through my eating disorder was I continued this relationship with the Lord and I knew who he was and I knew he was my savior, but for all practical means, the God I worshiped on a daily basis was food and exercise. Um, and I knew that I could hear, I could feel the Holy Spirit reminding me of that, that I had placed this above him, that I put all of my trust in, um, all of my trust for my daily life, you know, because I would freak out if I wasn't able to use my eating disorder behaviors. Everything in my life was built around this idol now to the exclusion uh, of Jesus Christ and also to the exclusion of my family and everything else. It's a very selfish disease. And you talk about how it, the content can change. It's, it's at that point that you can begin to see an eating disorder very similarly to an alcoholic, any other form yeah, yeah. of addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and and that's why if we don't get to the root, uh, we'll just bounce around. You just bounce right. from gambling to this to that, and then you just and you think you've won when you say, okay, right. I used to gamble, and now I don't gamble, but now I'm smoking, and now I got over that, but now I'm doing this. So it's like no, it's like a game almost. <laughs> now it mm-hmm. is the predatory lies of anorexia. A survivor's story is that written for off-the-shelf listeners? For the so they curious, maybe how it's written. Is it written in diary or traditional autobiographical format? And why did you choose that approach? Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned diary. It's not written in a diary format. But if I hadn't kept journals for those, you know, sixteen, eighteen years of my life, I would not have been able to write this story. All of it came from from those journals and from my diaries. That's how I could go back and pick out dates and even remember specific conversations and stuff like that. Um, but it's written, I feel like my, my goal was in a very story-like format. Um, I did use first person, so it would sound to some degree like um, the typical autobiographical or memoir format. Um, but I hope um, that it, it retains a little bit more of a story quality. 
so that it's very engaging even to the youngest reader. Um, and I've been told that that's the case. It's not something simply that a parent or a psychologist would pick up and say, you know, here's this woman's story, but that, you know, a high school sophomore could pick it up and enjoy it, actually, and maybe find a sweet um, um, empathy within it and see themselves in the story. That was really my goal, um, just being a reader, too, and enjoying reading. I want to find myself in the story. And I'm hopeful, too, my husband was gracious enough to let me include a little bit of his story, and um, he struggled with an addiction to pornography. And so I'm hopeful by combining those two things that somebody with, with any type of addiction could find themselves in this and say, I see what's going on. I can see what, mm-hmm. you know, she's telling me the inside of my own heart, basically, and hopefully see how Christ is the solution to their um, difficulties as well. Yeah, maybe if you could, like driving a car and you're going the wrong way, the sooner you figure out, whoa, I'm headed the wrong way and turn around. Right. Hopefully, as they listen to your story, so you don't, you don't, if you drive 100 miles the wrong way, you got to drive 100 miles back. <laughs> right. You don't want to exactly. go too far down the wrong road. Now, you said you, you, you wanted to write the book, so it's also an engaging story. Is it written for, would you say, adults, or could somebody younger? write it would it be too do you think it would be too heavy for a younger person and is the book more written for people who are struggling with anorexia and who are or are not a christian i would say personally that a christian would enjoy the book more i do think that a christian audience would identify with it more quickly um someone who maybe isn't a christian but has a grasp um i think maybe this could actually be a tool that would lead them towards salvation that would be my hope um someone without any familiarity with christ and with the christian faith and the concept of the trinity and the holy spirit working through us might have a little bit of difficulty actually connecting with the book um okay i think as far as age in the audience i really truly believe it does stand quite um quite a distance. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, I have been an editor and contributing author to Finding Balance, which is a phenomenal um, ministry to people dealing with eating disorder and body image issues. And um, they have an audience all the way from, you're talking maybe 11 or 12 up through, oh, okay. you know, 60s. And I have had members of their audience write me and say, thank you for the book. You know, it, it spoke okay. to me or I found myself in it. Um, and I've also had parents and friends of people with eating disorders tell me that it helped them because they could also see inside the mind of their loved one. I think that's one of the most difficult things with an eating disorder is when you're dealing with it as a loved one, it makes no sense on any level whatsoever mm-hmm. at all. Just eat. And they cannot understand this real conflict. And part of that is because if you look at other addictions, whether it be pornographism or cigarettes, anything like that, there is a kind of a black and white as in you either, in order to recover, you practice abstinence. With eating, you can't do that. And so a friend here trying to say just eat doesn't understand why since the whole world, (laughs) everything from inanimate plants to, you know, the highest life form human beings has to eat. It's there's just a strangeness to it. And so I really hope that be it family members or close friends can read it and go, I have some idea of what's going on in their head. So my prayer is that it's a very wide audience. Um, okay. I also hope that it would apply or be enjoyable by both men and women. 
um, I try to include a lot of, you know, my father's perspective and our relationship in that because it was a critical dynamic. And I think um, that, that fathers, too, would be able to see and connect with the book and find their daughters in it and, and hopefully get some um, illumination there. Now, how far back? You said, now, you, you, you do talk about the trip. You grew up in Oklahoma, but you talk about the trip, I believe, was to Wyoming. How far back mm-hmm. do you take readers when you're starting to uncover this story? And, again, you say it's written in, like, a, a first person, uh, mm-hmm. but not a um, not like a medical type of, of book, but no, an engaging story. How far back do you take readers? Do you take them back before the struggle started? So is, do you go back as far as your memory will take you? So if you can remember back to when you were three or five, do you talk about happy moments then? How far back do you go while you're uncovering the story so readers can get to know you? And, again, you, they, they may see little sparks of themselves as well. Mm-hmm. When you when when you're covering the story, does most of it take place when you're very very young, or when you're in deep in the throes of the of the mm-hmm. disease, or or does the most of it take place when you're recovering? Um, that's a really good question, actually. I start with the flight from Oklahoma, Arizona, which is the um, second and most helpful inpatient treatment center that I went to, and that was. Uh, February 9th of 1996. Um, And so I had been sick at that point for about two years. And so I start there. Um, And then the story is a little bit retroactive. So after the introduction of I just arrived at the treatment facility, we go back a little bit and look at where the eating disorder began. Um, I would say it probably only goes back to maybe age 12, um, just barely before the eating disorder began. The, The bulk of the book is the the muck, the the depth of the eating disorder. So it, I would say the bulk of the book covers years from about um, age 14 to about 20. Um, that was the deepest part of my eating disorder. And so um, there is a little bit of the lead in the introduction to prior to eating disorder. I try to use that so that you can establish kind of what you were getting at earlier, the family dynamics and what was feeding into it. But the most of it is the actual thick of the battle for about those first six years, 94 to 2000, um, and then I would say maybe the last quarter to a third of a book is after I was married, which happened at age, I got married at night, and kind of unveils how the eating disorder affects a marriage and how messy dynamics in a marriage can affect an eating disorder and a relapse. And um, so it spans all the way up really until um, I feel like when I get kind of almost again, I can almost pinpoint a little bit of the time frame, and it was, you know, the end of 2010 when I kind of shut the door and walked away from the eating disorder. And so um, it, it spans all of the dynamics, all of the relationships from being a sister to a daughter and, you know, a student to being a spouse, a military spouse at that. Um, but the majority of it is really truly the thick of the eating disorder. There's not a whole lot that goes into what it's like living as a recovered anorexic, um, and it doesn't go a whole lot you know, before the issues as well. I, I, I encourage, you know, our listeners, especially if they know someone, and they, they, you, they may not be aware that they know someone with an mm-hmm. eating disorder. We're interviewing Abby Kelly. Again, she's a, a Christian, a wife, an editor, a writer, a Bible study leader, and she's also the author of the book, The Predatory Lies of Anorexia, A Survivor's Story. 
And again, the title is The Predatory Lies of Anorexia, a Survivor Story. And she's, as you can tell, she's very candid. You can hear that in, in today's interview. So you can expect that even when you read her book. I wanted to ask you, just again, you never know, somebody might say, oh, I just accidentally came across that station and they weren't even intending to listen to today's show. But can you share five or more signs of anorexia. Now this this and, and and before you do for our listeners, this isn't so people can go out and jump on somebody and say, Oh, you got those signs or whatever. It's it's when we have issues and we all have things we struggle with, the best way to approach any of it is with love. Once people know you really love them, I think that's when Definitely. they they can they can start to listen more. You can't force it on them, but when they're not so sure you say it's a disease of control, like hoarding, and then if you want to try to control somebody else's life by forcing them out of something, that's not going to work either. You have to love no. a person and really let them know that you love them. That said, can you share five or more signs of anorexia, maybe somebody who's struggling with it and doesn't think they are? I say, well, I have all five. Oh, goodness. Let's see. Um, hmm. I would say first, as I mentioned before, um, a um, a sense of pride over an ability to control their food, their diet, and their exercise. Unfortunately, I think that actually can um, indicate at least a um, what they call um, eating disorder not otherwise specified in probably 60 to 70% of women today. Um, there is an inordinate attention on food. And exercise, you can see it dominating many conversations. But um, I think that is still, even though it can apply to much of the population, still at least, especially early on, a key indicator to, I need to see what's going on. But you can see this in your own life. You know, you know when you're completely obsessed with, with what right. you for dinner tomorrow or um, if you're going to make it to work out today. And so I think particularly for an individual personally, that's something they can say, hey, this doesn't feel right. This is an inordinate amount of attention to this. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, and, and obviously, um, and weight. Um, for mm-hmm. me, that was really the first telltale sign. It was I came. It was within the course of maybe two months. Suddenly, I lost my cycle. Um, my collarbones were poking through my shirt, and that's sometimes difficult for a family member or someone who sees you every day to notice. Um, but you see someone who maybe hasn't seen you in a month or a few weeks, and they go, oh, my goodness, what happened to you? Right. And that's really what helped my mom. I was gone for a week or two, and I came back, and she's like, oh, my goodness, what happened to you? Okay, right. Um, so that's obviously a very telling sign. Um, and you, I may get some pushback on this one from listeners or whatever, but I think that calorie counting is um, is a trigger, or not a trigger, a signal um, there are many different weight loss programs out there who say that counting calories is the end all be all to weight loss. Um, right. I would disagree with that, and I find that, um, especially once you've kind of begun to move toward anorexic tendencies or to have some of those tendencies, those numbers give you a false sense of control and can really exacerbate the problem. So I think it's, it, well, and I used to carry around little notebooks with me everywhere through high school, and I tallied every calorie and every stick of gum. And I think that that is, um, you know, when you see someone who is that meticulous about everything you're eating and measuring everything, I think it really, my parents noticed, because I'd never measured everything about my food before, but I became very meticulous with every individual calorie. Um, let me think. Uh, this is something that, 
again, these someone may have one or two of these things that you can right. observe in their character, and it's not necessarily an indication of an eating disorder. But when you begin to combine them, um, something that I know a lot of people have dealt with, you know, an eating disorder, is they begin to wear very baggy clothes. Um, oh, even if they're losing weight. Yeah, even if they're losing weight and it's this idea of I want to be the thinnest ever, shame is, is a huge part of it. And no matter how thin they get, it's never thin enough. And so there's still significant shame attached to body. And wow. covering that up is, is um, often an indicator that someone's struggling with significant body image issues, which obviously are mixed with an eating disorder many times. Um, and then another one, um, my sisters remember this specifically, particularly my youngest sister. I was freezing all the time. Um, and I would wear many, many layers in the heat of summer. I picked up my sister once from gymnastics practice, and she said, it was middle of the summer, and this is burned into her memory. She got in the car, and I had the three shirts. And she got in after gymnastics practice, and the car was so hot she could barely breathe. Wow. Um, but, again, that's one of those things that you, you mess with your body on so many levels. It's not just yeah. a physical appearance is too thin. Your body can't keep itself warm. It can't menstruate correctly. And I don't want to leave men out of this either. I know that there are an increasing number of men who deal with eating disorders. I'm not as familiar mm. with those those aspects. Um, but, you know, you look at menstruation, that would be another key one. If, if suddenly you're dealing with, with symptoms of amenorrhea, um, that's a key indicator that your body fat content is too low. Um, right. um, that's interesting. I've never heard that. Some, when you feel cold, yeah. you feel cold all the time. Even when it's hot, and you and the calorie mm-hmm. counting was a, a new one for, to me. But I can tell you, mm-hmm. I never dealt with anorexia, but I knew I was headed down a, a wrong direction. And I, I wasn't as young as you; I probably was in my early twenties. But there was a period when I just kept getting on the bathroom scale. I just yes. kept, and so I knew. I said, "Wait a minute, I'm, I'm starting to this is starting to get a little mm-hmm. too much." And every five minutes, there's no reason to get up on the scale again. So no. that's when I think that is a to me, like you said, you might not have them all, but you could be headed down a wrong path. Mm-hmm. If you, there's no reason to get up on the scale every five minutes, or every two to three minutes. There's nothing really going to change no. that quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, that's just a personal one for me. That is a sign if you if you're getting up on the scale twenty, thirty times a day, that's too much to me. I think. Oh, that's, absolutely. That's, yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that's that's one I really should have mentioned. That's a very good point. And I would honestly say that by the time someone's weighing themselves daily, there's an issue. I mean, it just becomes it becomes a part of your life. And, and you'll hear many people who have dealt with an eating disorder tell you that they step on the scale every morning, and that number determined the quality of day they would have. To me, that right. indicated that your mind is focused <laughs> on the wrong thing. Even if yeah. you're not, even if you're not deep into one, I think for a lot what? of people, I can tell you, I can raise my hand on that one. I can personally raise my hand it, it, when you step on the scale and you're like, "Oh my God, I went up a pounder," and then you you you, you 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 have to talk to yourself not to feel down, like, "Okay, it's right. okay," and just keep going. Mm-hmm. That is a sign. That scale can. Yes, that scale can be a little tricky. Um, that that's a good one. I'm 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 glad that you said that. How many times, Abby, you know, sometimes we try to do something. It could be anything, getting a, getting a business going, selling a book. It could be anything that we're trying to do, and mm-hmm. we, we 
take some steps forward, then boom, we're back. Then we take steps forward, then boom, we're back. An important thing I like to say to people on Off the Shelf is don't quit. Don't quit trying. Don't quit trying to advance. Don't quit trying to progress. I don't care how many times you stall out. I don't care how many times you stop. Just You cannot give up on yourself. You cannot mm-hmm. give up on yourself. How many times did you try to gain victory over this particular disease before you were finally free of it? Goodness. Well, as far as inpatient places, which were, you know, the the hardcore attempts, I was inpatient three different times, two significant times. One was the original place I mentioned that didn't really have a, a good fit for an eating disorder program. Um, but in, even in between those, it was a constant try. And I know you could talk to my parents and how exhausted they were and how tempting it was just to throw up your hands and say, we've tried everything. Because even in between those those big events, I was constantly seeing an outpatient counselor. I saw numerous dietitians and nutritionists. Um, it was a constant effort. Um, and so for me, it, it it felt like I never quit trying. And it was it was just completely exhausting. There were so many times I truly did think I would rather just give in and let this be my life. And at the same time, it was living in absolute no holds barred, complete hell. It was not something I wanted, but I didn't. Um, I did relapse the final time when after I was married, and I didn't get, um, I didn't go inpatient again after that. But I did see another outpatient counselor and another nutritionist. Um, and it was funny too because at that point, you think you've tried everything; nothing else is going to help. And I wouldn't say that those were the. Um, that that was the final, the magic counselor, anything that I'd been waiting for. It wasn't what fixed it. Um, but I would I would encourage someone to not to give up even on the most traditional methods, even the most traditional things that they've tried a hundred times. Don't walk away from counseling. Don't walk away from getting help because you're not going to be able to fix it on your own no matter how long or how hard you've been trying. Um, mm-hmm. One of the verses that I feel like God really stuck in my head with this one over and over was, and don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time you'll reap the uh, harvest if you do not lose heart. Um, yes. Unfortunately, I can't give you the reference, um, but it was it was his promise to me that if I just didn't give up in his time, I would reap the harvest. It would it would it would be you know there would be an end to this. Um, I'm trying to think, there was something else on the tip of my tongue there. Um, and and now you you can it. help so many now. Not only see, not only did you not give up, you now can right. help others, and you could you could help somebody like a, as a doctor or a counselor. But I think people listen more when they're like, "But he or she went through it. They know what yes. they know what that feels like, and if they came out, then really, actually, when you think about it, that's what the resurrection's about. It's like, yes. not I'm not just telling you this. I actually went through what you're going right. through. And came yes. out. So, so I'm I'm telling you that you can do it. I'm proof yes. because I did it, and that's 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 I think right. You're part of your story. Now you had said this. You said you can't do it. Don't give up, and you and don't you can't do it on your own. And this show is flying by. I wanted to ask you. Say uh, a lot of times when we're struggling with something, and alluded to this earlier, we look out at the world and we say, okay, people get teased for this, this, and that. These people get shunned for this, so I don't. I don't want to be that way. I want to be accepted by other people who aren't perfect, and we mm-hmm. try so hard to do this, all of us. So when we struggle with something and we think people won't accept me, 
it's like, okay, I'll hide it. And not only that, then in the hiding, we start to isolate ourselves. I see this yes. often with people who have mental health issues. It's almost mm-hmm. a first step isolation. Uh, yes. what, what, why do you think, and I, pick any disorder, why do you think we hide? Knowing there are millions of people struggling with the same thing, why do you think we hide and then why do you think we isolate ourselves? Well, you know, honestly, I think it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Shame is such a even shame is 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 innate in a human, especially when we feel like we've messed anything up. And you look all the way back to Adam and Eve with the very first sin, and their first response was to hide. Um, it's it's ingrained in us when we feel like there is the possibility of someone being disappointed in us, of someone disapproving of us of not meeting the standard, um, we hide. It's, it's something we've been doing from since creation. So I don't really think that it's an unusual thing or, or even, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's an unusual thing really at all. It's, it's kind of the way we've been from the dawn of time. Um, we, we hate to fail. And even if there are millions of other people struggling with this, the, the flip side of the coin of shame is pride. And we don't want to be the one struggling with it. We don't want to admit that. It doesn't matter how many other people are broken. We certainly don't want to admit we are. Um, mm. I mean, think about it even in the garden. Neither Adam nor Eve claimed, you know, they didn't find any camaraderie in the fact that they were both suddenly naked and had right. it was It was this instant hiding and blame game. But there's, there's really no solace in saying, well, I'm not the only one. We say that a lot. Well, I'm not perfect and nobody else is. But that doesn't that doesn't really help us. We don't want to be the broken uh, one, regardless of how many other people are broken too. Interesting, interesting. You put a, a new angle on something. What advice then, Abby? Because you said don't give up on the treatments. What advice would you give to somebody? And, I, and her mind, her name popped in my head twice. Karen Carpenter. I loved her mm, and her brother yeah. Uh and she, you know, succumbed her heart to the to mm-hmm. the disease. But what advice would you give to someone who is isolating her or himself now, regardless of what their struggle is? Yeah, um, regardless of what they're struggling with, um, I'm I'm going to link this up with um, an alcoholic, and because um, I have a very good friend who has recovered from that, and we've shared our our struggles and our stories, and are always just amazed at the similarity. And, and someone struggling with pornography um, and the isolation of shame, the first thing I would say is to tell someone, and then I think that's where the counseling comes in, it breaks, it, it, it just flies in the face of shame to tell someone. And that's why when you look at, when you read many things about how people will deal with, you know, a pornography addict, they talk about accountability. Tell someone. It, it right there, you just, you've, You've broken the stronghold of shame and pride associated with it. And once it's out there, that's why they do the 12 steps in the Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous being a misnomer, I feel like, there because you're going and hanging out with a bunch of people who can say, hey, here's what's going on in my life. There is something very powerful about sharing your brokenness with someone else. And that's why I think you can't give up on counseling. Because the minute that you do, the isolation continues and and pride has a tense in a sense, almost build a scab over it again, and it hardens itself, and you feel like you're kind of okay. And the reason I say counseling again, too, is because it may be very difficult to just go and tell 
a friend or a loved one or someone on the street, hey, you know, I'm dealing with an eating disorder or any other addiction. But for some reason, you go to a counselor, this is a professional, it's someone that's safe to tell. But it still breaks mm-hmm. that hold of shame just to simply get it out there and quit pretending that you've got it all under control. You know what, and another tip I would share uh if what whatever you're struggling with, I know this helps me if I'm even if it's just something that happened uh, during the day and I'm upset or feeling anxious and I can't I'm struggling to get beyond that emotion. Uh, I'll write it down, just put it in a diary or write it somewhere, mm-hmm. and that's a first step. But if you're dealing with something more serious, I do recommend a professional counselor. Not hiding yeah. is the first thing we want to do is hide. <laughs> Not hiding. Right. Is that's the last thing you want to do is to hide is. because you want to get a, you want again if you're driving in the wrong direction you want to turn around early as possible you don't want to get hundreds and thousands of miles because you gotta you gotta hoof it back that far too right. so don't you don't you want to you want to catch it as soon as you can I cannot believe how fast this show is going I have so many questions that I wanted to ask you and I'm just skipping over questions I wanted to ask you next <laughs> when did you start your blog, and can you give us the URL to the blog? Sure. The URL to the blog is actually the same as my website. It is just www.predatory-lies.com, exactly as you spelled at the beginning of the show. Um, I started the blog. Interesting you talk about putting it in a diary or journaling. That is a key part of of my recovery, and that's actually how the whole blog um, started. It was a way of just, journaling my feelings. It was meant for no one other than myself and maybe a few close family members. We were military already, and so I put on there sometimes just some newsy updates so family could know where we were at or what we were doing. Um, But that's really where it started, just a chronicle of my life and the things I was going through. Um, It wasn't until um, that I actually, again, the blog actually kind of helped to write the book as it was almost one of my journals, um, that I actually began to kind of um, shape the blog into something that that told the story and hopefully will go beyond the book and telling the full story of, of recovery in Christ afterwards. Um, but it actually started um, in probably 2005, I think. So we'd already had okay. the background of going through quite a bit of treatment even up to that point. But that was that was about the time frame of my, my final relapse, the one that occurred once I was married and as an adult. Um, and it was kind of, I was at that, that critical point where I felt like I'd tried everything. I didn't want to go back to counseling. I subsequently did. Um, but that's really where the, the blog began. It was a journal right then of what I was going through. Um, and then it ended up feeding right into the development of the book. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I didn't know that. See, this is, I always learn something on the show, and you have taught me quite a bit here, and I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from what you shared as well. Being that the blog focuses on healthy balance, and I know your book focuses the predatory lives of anorexia, a survivor story on an eating disorder. But, again, there are many different forms of things, whether it's just we struggle with it one day or a week or for years, that we just in this world, we just struggle with different things. How important is it to find, and we're in a very fast-paced world, Abby, how important is it to find and maintain a healthy balance in this frantic, frantic, fast-paced world. It is. It is key. It is absolutely key. Part of the thing is, is once you're in a um, frantic, fast-paced, fast-paced world and out of balance, it's so easy 
like being on a hamster wheel. And so even if you realize you've got a problem or eating disorder or some other addiction or anything, if you're going too fast, you don't have time to address it. It, it makes it easy to be distracted from a real mm-hmm. problem. Um, and I would, I guess, I feel a little bit, obviously you don't want to swing the other direction, but our culture has swung so far to the polar end of insanely busy that I feel yes. really in order to find balance, we have to focus almost more heavily on integrating rest and quiet and peace into our lives in order to find that balance. We're going to have to swing very hard the other direction in order to come to the middle ground there. Um, and so that's, that's a key thing that I focus on in my own life is mm. not scheduling things so that I have to rush from one to the right. other. And, and it sounds so cliche, but saying no sometimes and um, really factoring in quiet time alone with the Lord every single day. Um, yes. I think, I think that those are really, truly, especially for a Christian, non-negotiable when it comes to whether you're recovering or not or just seeking to find balance in your life. Um, I think that those are something we have to focus on very heavily. Um, it's, it's just our default to go into extreme busyness. Yes, yeah, yeah, like you said, it's a great di- being busy is a great distractor. Do you ever yeah. plan, Abby, to write a novel? And if so, what do you think that novel would be about? You know, truthfully, I've had many people suggest that I do that, and I, I have never really tried my hand at fiction at all. So I don't know. I don't. Um, so far, with the books, the two books I've written, both this one and then I've written a Bible study, Beyond Belief, Jesus Saved You, Now What. Um, I really feel like God put those in me. I can look back and not even remember the whole process of writing. I remember sitting down, but wow. it wasn't—it wasn't nug work. It wasn't hard. I really felt like I needed to write those, and and He gave me the energy and the words to do it. Uh, at this point, I don't feel that that He has um, gifted me or or put a fiction or novel in me. Um, but He surprised me with the first two. I really didn't think I'd ever write fifty thousand words. In one, on one topic. So um, it, it could be, but I honestly don't have any vision for a novel in the future. Um, okay, okay. Was, so we'll, we'll, have to leave we'll, me. So that one's wait and see, but right now you don't think yes, so. Ma'am. Where can, where can Off the Shelf get a copy of your book? And, again, we are uh, we are just so blessed to have Abby Kelly on with us. She is the author of the book, The Predatory Lies of Anorexia, a Survivor Story. Where can our listeners get copies of your book? And is it in print, audio, and ebook format? Yes, ma'am. It is in all of those. Um, most of my, my readers have purchased it on Amazon, either in ebook or print edition. Um, but it is available on Barnes and Noble online. If you go into Barnes and Noble and they don't have it, they can also order it. Um, it's in a few um, local Christian bookstores. Um, but it is it is widely available on the internet. Also, if you go to my website, you can find the links there to purchase it um, from Amazon. I think it's the direct links that I have there. But like I said, also um, Barnes and Noble, Borders, Books a Million, things like that. And tell us where you are on social media, please. Sure. Um, I have a Facebook page, and um, it is just Abby Kelly um, at Facebook, and Twitter is um, um, that sign. Obviously, predatory lies. Um, I haven't established much of a pres- uh, social media presence outside of that. I'm still a little intimidated by Instagram and such. I haven't even tried Instagram. So, but I you are doing phenomenal, Abby. So we have 
We really have been blessed to have Abby Kelly. Again, she's a Christian, a writer, editor, mother, Bible study leader, and she's the author of the book, and she's written a Bible study guide as well. She's the author of what we ta- the, her book we talked about today was The Predatory Lies of Anorexia, Survivor's Story. She's also a contributor and editor at Finding Balance. You can find more about her book and her blog, which has millions of followers, at predatorylies.com, and that's spelled P-R-E-D-A-T-O-R-Y dash L-I-E-S dot com. Again, Abby Kelly, the author of The Predatory Lies of Anorexia, A Survivor Story. This show went so fast. I'm telling you, a lot of our shows just blaze. I had a lot of other questions to ask Abby, but we ran out of time. For those of you who might have tuned into today's show, Midstream, once it uh, once it streams and archives, you can go back and listen to it as many times as you like. Feel free to share the link to today's show with anyone who you think might benefit or be blessed from the show. We want to thank Abby again for being here with us and wish her and her family a happy holidays. And to all of our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in. Please tell everybody to tune in to Off the Shelf Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, or New York City time, where we always bring you phenomenal guests. And I I say this every week, and I hope one day we all truly grasp this. You are amazing. You are awesome. You are phenomenal. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday. We will have an actress who was on an historic TV series here with you next Saturday. So please tune in next Saturday, 11 a.m., Eastern Standard Time. Bye for now, and Abby, I'll shoot you an email. Thank you for an awesome interview.